This is episode 201 of That Shakespeare Life. The video version of today's episode is available for patrons. Access the video version of our show along with bonus history, downloads, and patrons-only history extras at Patreon slash That Shakespeare Life. And stay tuned after the episode for even more details. Hi, I'm Miranda Faye Thomas, Assistant Professor of Theatre and Performance at Trinity College Dublin and author of Shakespeare's Body Language. Another great method for studying the life of William Shakespeare includes listening to this. It's That Shakespeare Life with my friend Cassidy Cash. And she's already said, you know, he held me by the wrist or, uh, you know, held me hard. You know, so what kind of father is putting the daughter into a situation like this? Welcome to That Shakespeare Life with Cassidy Cash. Cassidy believes that if you desire to successfully learn or perform Shakespeare's plays, then understanding the real life and history of William Shakespeare himself is a must. That Shakespeare Life is the podcast that helps you go beyond the curtain of some of Shakespeare's most iconic works and explore the world of early modern England as Shakespeare would have lived it, learning from the writers, historians, and performers who know it best. And now, here's Cassidy. Many of Shakespeare's most powerful scenes are based on physical action that isn't directly written about in the scripts of his works. For example, when Ophelia goes mad and demonstrates her madness on stage, we know for certain what she says during that scene because her lines are written out for us, but it's unclear what her physical movements would be on stage. Similarly, in fight scenes like brawls, riots, or acts of domestic abuse that happen within Shakespeare's plays, it's up to interpretation of the director as to how the actors would have performed. Our guest this week, Jared Kirby and Seth Dewar have decided to take some of the guesswork out of these scenes by investigating the history of fights, physical violence, and stage performance to determine what kind of actions should accompany the fights, assaults, struggles, and foul play in Shakespeare's plays. Hello, Jared and Seth. It's nice to have you here with us. Jared, it's so glad to welcome you back. And Seth, it's nice to have you here for the first time. So glad you're here. I could be with you. Thanks. Thanks so much. In Shakespeare's Hamlet, one of the most moving scenes is when Ophelia goes mad. In the book Staging Shakespeare's Violence, Jared and Seth outlined that Ophelia's actions are up to interpretation, but they say that she should at least, quote, have a bruised wrist and sore arm and still be dealing with the shock of what has occurred, end quote. Jared, explain for us what evidence you were able to put together that led you to believe Ophelia's minimum circumstances should involve these injuries specifically. Thanks. This comes uh, right from the text. So, is Seth, it's uh, 2-1? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Just have to make sure. In uh, 2-1, Ophelia's reporting her interaction with Hamlet to her father. And uh, this is where I'm sure Seth can quote chapter and verse. But she explains how he grabs her in that scene. And it's, it's very frightening, and it's an element of their relationship that I have infrequently seen in form performances. So we wanted to make sure to, to bring that up and to make sure that Ophelia factors that in when she is interacting with Hamlet. He has been off. He has dealt violently with her. 
she's reported this to uh, her father vis-a-vis the audience. And so it's something that needs to be taken into consideration, both in the nunnery scene and then again in her madness. I was surprised to see Ophelia's performance of madness listed in the book on Shakespeare's violence, because I consider the violent part of Ophelia's performance to be, of course, her suicide, but that's not even acted out on stage. It's an aftermath of her choices are explained in a, in a description by Gertrude. So Seth, explain for us how you decided Ophelia was the victim of domestic abuse. Well, I mean, not necessarily, uh, but it has to be an option on the table I want to go back a bit and and say um, when you're deciding about how uh, her family works, what kind of father is Polonius? Because a lot of times we see this like sweet doddering old man. And I don't think that's particularly the case. This guy helped get Claudius on the throne. I think he's a planner, a kingmaker. And uh, he doesn't have to be uh, a nice, sweet old man type. He could be. But uh, I think we have to take into account and what Jared and I always press throughout the book is examine all the things that aren't necessarily laid out on the page about each character or 400 years worth of performances and what you've seen. And so one of the first thing that leaps out to me when thinking about Ophelia is not just whether Hamlet's the first person to you know get physical with her, but if other people in her life have, particularly her father. Uh, what we do know is that he uses her as bait. Uh, <laughs> so I think if you're willing to use your kid as bait with someone who, who you think is possibly gone nuts, you have no clue how he's going to react. And she's already said, you know, he held me by the wrist or, uh, you know, he held me hard. You know, so what kind of father is putting the daughter into a situation like this? Uh, what do you already know? And then working with your particular actors in in a rehearsal room in your version of the play, figuring out who is this uh, father? Who is this daughter? Maybe the brother, too. I don't think he's abusive towards her. He seems to like her. But uh, again, you have to establish what is this family like so that they're just not some cardboard cutouts, especially in Hamlet. That's a danger because the, the other players can become a very one-dimensional with a character like Hamlet at the center. So I think we should explore everyone three-dimensionally. I think it's an excellent question to ask and highly important to how you evaluate Hamlet and Ophelia, certainly. But I wonder about the differences between when the 16th century, when this was written and today, and there was a higher level of acceptable violence, certainly between fathers and daughters in the 16th century. And what was considered shocking for Shakespeare's lifetime is much different than what would shock a modern audience. You know, we're certainly, we can say, no, using your daughter as bait's not in any parenting books that that I've read, <laughs> but, <laughs> but were they, were they operating off of a different standard when Shakespeare presented this relationship on his stage? Well, I think there's two elements that are captured in our book that I think are are really important to talk about now, which is, number one, Seth and I don't always agree, and we try to capture that in the book. Personally, when I've played Laertes multiple times, um, the big thing that unlocked that character the last time I played it was uh, the director, Austin Pendleton, actually approaches that family dynamic almost the opposite, where the in his mind, or at least when he presented it to me, the mother may have died very young, and that made the family unit extremely tight. 
So that that brought a whole new level to my performance for him. So I, I, I like that option. That's not to say that that the domestic violence option is wrong. And that's something we really try to capture in the book is that we're presenting options, not how it should be done, but just things to explore because your production will be better when you choose what not to do as well as what to do. And there's a lot of history of of performance, and I can already hear the letters I'm going to get from listeners as I make this suggestion, but it might have even been intentional on Shakespeare's part to leave these gaps of interpretation where you could perform the same play multiple different ways and have it be significantly different each time, because a lot of these plays were presented in different venues at different times, and they were designed to be recycled. And so... You know, if he had done that on purpose, it would make it easy to recycle the plays without them getting boring. And I'll just throw that thought out there for general just, mulling over. I'll, I'll, I'll add something there because I, I like that idea a lot. My favorite thing about Shakespeare is actually what he doesn't include. So exactly what you're saying, the unanswered question. And I'll give a perfect example of this. It, when you're working on the Scottish play, I think we can say it. It's a podcast, uh, Macbeth. Hello. Uh, <laughs> just, just whisper it really soon. <laughs> yes. Um, when you're working on that play, you have to answer the question of the dead baby. So for your listeners who have no clue what I'm talking about, there is uh, a moment in Act 1, Scene 7, where Macbeth has decided that he's not going to kill the king. It's very rare in Shakespeare that you have a big soliloquy in the, in the first act debating whether you're going to kill someone and you arrive at the answer of no. That's very rare. And so Macbeth does. And Lady Macbeth wanders in and goes, what the hell are you talking about? What do you mean no? <laughs> and she tries all sorts of tactics to get through to him. Uh, she try, She says, are, are you a man? Are you drunk? What's wrong with you? None of these things work. Finally, she says uh, this uh, passage about um, having uh, breastfed a child. We're never told anything else about the child. We don't know whose child it is. All we know is that she says this and suddenly Macbeth changes his mind and says, okay, fine, we are going to do this. That's a huge unanswered question. And you have to deal with it, grapple with it in your production and then come up with answers, you know, at least with your actors, it's going to be a secret, obviously, but they need to know what the hell they're talking about. And you can tell very quickly about particular productions, whether they've done any of their homework, because if they don't grapple with that question, I don't know why we're sitting there for the next four acts. I don't know. <laughs> and Adam, I'm glad you bring up Macbeth because we we dove pretty heavily into Hamlet and the book does deal with violence in general across Shakespeare's works. And in Macbeth, the text of the dialogue indicates that Lady Macbeth rubs her hands for a quarter of an hour. This action indicates her madness. Yet, Seth, in your perhaps tongue-in-cheek notes for Act 5, Scene 1, your instructions to Lady Macbeth in particular states, quote, your Lady Macbeth should avoid two things. One, wringing or rubbing her hands to the point where she starts bleeding. Sounds like sound advice. And two, setting herself on fire with the taper, which sounds like what I would do if I was performing Lady Macbeth. Seth, I grant you that catching yourself on fire with a taper would take the show in a completely different direction, but the hand-rubbing instructions is surprising because... Both the the hand rubbing and the bleeding seems kind of pivotal to her character there. Can you explain for us why you would encourage Lady Macbeth not to rub her hands excessively in this scene? Well, yes, you've caught me in a minor error. What I should have said, because I only dedicate like one sentence to that scene, uh, what I should have said is the actor 
playing uh, Lady Macbeth uh, should not be uh, profusely bleeding. Uh, The character could from overdoing it, but it actually brings up a larger point that Jared and I like to get to a lot, which is the actors and the director and the fight uh, director, choreographer, those folks should all know that they're safe. We do not believe the audience needs to know that any point. And so uh, if there is a sort of a line where people in the audience are thinking, oh, God, is the actor so committed to the role that she is actually bleeding? Then we've done a really good job with whatever blood setup is, is going on. And Jared can speak to the logistics of, of how that would work. But, yeah, we, we, we like to blur the line uh, very much of are these people in danger? Because then you are caring about whether they're they're invested is the point. There's a visceral reaction in the audience and you don't get that in a lot of fights. I've noticed, especially in Shakespeare, but pretty much anywhere go, Oh, that's cute to tap, tap, tap with swords. Oh, that's nice. Uh, you know, they're not invested. So any, anytime you can blur those lines, we're always into that. Yeah. The, the audience is not part of the theater company in a, in that way. And you have to maintain that the experiences are and should be different. Yeah, it's it's something that one of the reasons I think that Seth and I gelled so well 20 years ago was because of this very aspect in, yeah, it, it's been a long time, especially working in New York, we see everything. And so there are there are people who decide that the violence needs to be apparently staged that it must or uh, that it must look like a dance, that they don't want the audience to engage with uh, the violence. And that's a choice people are welcome to make, but it's wrong um, as far as <laughs> and, and I'm saying that from our perspectives. And so if the audience is not actually ooing, eyeing, gagging, you know, during Lear, I've had people pass out vomit leave the show you know like these these are visceral honest reactions from people who are engaged in the performance and that should be our goal not to remove them from the show by anything we're doing but to suck them in for that two or god forbid three hours (laughs) they're going to be in the theater watching shakespeare Jared and Seth address creative license in their book, but suggest that there are limits before, as a director, you've gone past the boundary of doing a Shakespeare play, and now you've stretched into the realm of doing something new that you've created, which is not necessarily bad, but it stops being Shakespeare at that point. For example, Jared and Seth both come down hard on a director who staged the first meeting of Kate and Petruchio as a five-minute sword fight, indicating that approach is inappropriate to the production, quote, unless the director has set the play in Amazonia. I think that's an intended to be a joke, but Jared and Seth, with so much of the application of violence up to interpretation, as we've shared, how much freedom of expression is appropriate before the play has become something new instead of being what Shakespeare wrote? So when we're coming down hard on a choice like that, we're presenting Amazonia as both a joke and maybe a possibility. Like it is the only thing I can think of that would make that make sense that they would be fighting. Now, does the rest of the show work that way? Hell no. (laughs) So it's definitely a joke. It's a scene that should be very physical 
Absolutely. When I've, I've worked on that show, we make sure that it's, it's very physical, right? But to actually draw weapons in a context like that, especially weapons that are probably sharp, you're now crossing into an inappropriate place where you're introducing danger in a scene that shouldn't have it. Now, maybe there's a fencing master strolling around and there happens to be foils in the room and they decide to put masks and jackets on and and have a a little bout. Um, But even then, to go for five minutes, you've now taken this use of violence, which as, as far as I'm concerned, violence should be enhancing the production. It should not be upstaging the production. And a five-minute sword fight in that scene now crosses the line by almost creating an oleo act out of this scene. It's no longer a part of the show. It's not moving along the character's stories. And that's when I consider it excessive violence. Yeah, that's a huge thing for me. If if it's not advancing the story or the characters, uh, both really, why the hell are we doing it? Uh, I think that's your line. And so it, it comes down to a matter of taste, obviously, and, and in the production that you're working on and what story you want to tell. But I think that's a, a great parameter right there, which is, are you advancing the story or not? If you're not, it's gratuitous, go away. You know, I, and I think that's how you easily get out of the realm of Shakespeare and into something else. Are you just telling your own thing to have your own signature on it and go, oh, look at me? You know, I, I mean, it's like some directors, it's like a, a, a baby in the corner with their diaper holding it up and going, look, look. I mean, <laughs> that's, you can do that on your own time. We don't it's need to that, whole, it's that it. whole idea of more isn't necessarily better. Sometimes it's just more. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I know you guys have mentioned the first rule of stage fights is safety and whatever we do, it, we do it so that no one actually gets hurt. And you talked about the importance of the audience's role in that and for them to actually, yes, you want them to fear for the people on stage because that's the playwright's intention. But Jared, I want to ask you about the vast difference in safety standards for the 16th century versus today and the way theater was performed in a practical sense was quite different then than it is today. And uh, so when you're doing Shakespeare performances, are there ever instances where what Shakespeare intended to be staged is too unsafe in modern safety standards to perform authentically. That's a a great question. And I wish we had so much more information on how these things were actually done in Shakespeare's time. When it comes to the staged violence, we just don't know. We don't know how much was choreographed, how much was improvised. You're dealing with people that are probably trained sword fighters. So You know, it's very easy. In fact, you know, to this day, myself and people in my company can put together a 32 move fight and have that ready to go in 15 minutes. It's just standard patterns that will we know and we've trained it. So there's probably some level in between. As far as things that they may have done that would be too unsafe these days, I can't think of anything except for I've always wondered if there really was a bear pursuing knew, him off stage. Exactly. Yeah. Do we use real bears on stage? Probably not. So. Yeah. I mean, I've only uh, done that scene in a reading and we had a teddy bear chase him off stage. So. <laughs> 
Yeah. I don't, think I've years, ever, I don't think I've ever seen them bring a, a real bear on stage. I've seen a bear in costume, like a person dressed up like a bear. But no. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I know. Jared, I know. We've, we've received a challenge, Jared. <laughs> <laughs> if we can do it in film, we can do it on stage. I think it's, so. I think so. Somebody had to have. No, I mean, they I w- got the, the bear from that DiCaprio movie, The Revenant. We got to be able to get that bear on stage, I'm sure. <laughs> Speaking of safety standards, in, in King Lear, I want to ask about um, cultural differences for actions that happen on stage. In King Lear, Reagan pulls hairs from Gloucester's beard. And I can't help but think this particular act of violence might go over the heads of modern audiences because the entire understanding of of a white beard and this action proving that Gloucester is now a traitor, the the action itself might not make sense for a modern audience who just doesn't have that context, for whom that action doesn't carry that meaning anymore. As a director performing these plays on stage, how do they navigate doing what's in the script, but knowing that their audience is not going to get it? They're not going to understand why the actor is doing doing this. You can explain that to your players, to your actors, but you don't have this explanation to the audience. So how, how do you make that work? Well, the, like you said, the first thing you do is uh, usually in table work in the first week. Yes, that would that particular instance would be explained or at least discussed amongst the actors. All they really need to know, and this is where they can help the audience a bit with context, is that uh, when Regan is plucking the beard of, uh, of this this uh, this older gentleman, probably uh, an old white beard, that was at the time thought of uh, oh, like innocence, basically, uh, and wisdom, and and to 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 have that means you couldn't possibly be a traitor. And so, what she's suggesting by pulling you know uh, hairs away from that is that he doesn't really have the wisdom and supposed innocence uh, his appearance may suggest. Just the fact of the actors knowing that um, is going to charge how it's played. And I think sort of how the audience uh, would see it. I don't think it's a terrible leap, but it's also not hugely necessary. I'm not going to go into the playbill and write liner notes about you must know this particular thing. <laughs> and there's dozens, if not hundreds of, of instances in every single Shakespeare play uh, where you're going to have moments like these, where there there could be a connotation very specific to the 16th century or before that the audience at the time might have known and we wouldn't now. And yeah, you have to just sort of deal with those in time and, and see how important any one of those are. But I think we get the general idea, especially just based on how you cast it and play it, uh, that Regan and Gloucester uh, have just such radically different moral structures that you just watching the two of them in the same space should, is, is already alarming, <laughs> just how they navigate you know, the world of the play. So I'm not particularly worried about that. Uh, again, I always want to make sure in the first week that as long as all the actors involved know what the hell's going on, that's already going to make it a lot easier for the audience. Now, continuing with the scene in the book, Gloucester goes on to be tortured and Jared maps out the details of how to make this bloody scene take place, including instructions on the use of blood packets and fake eyeballs. To spare our classroom listeners too much gore about his scene, I'll stop there with my description. But my query here about William Shakespeare is how he would have achieved this same effect on the 16th century stage. Jared, do we know or have historical examples of how special effects like fake eyeballs and blood spats would have happened in the 16th century? 
No. <laughs> Unfortunately. And we're no. done. No. <laughs> and scene. <laughs> no, there's, you know, there's a hypothesis and, you know, um, there's little tidbits here and there about using intestines from animals and uh, blood from animals and stuff like that back in the day. So we have little bits like that, but definitely nothing specific on here's how it was done. And I think that goes back to actually reinforce our point in using uh, staged violence in a show. It, you know, these reports that we're getting are from the audience. And so the audience shouldn't know how it was done. Even back then, it wasn't that obvious what was happening or how it was happening. So there was no peeps to mention, hey, what great fake eyeball was used in this scene? Or, you know, I love the staged blood utilized in that. Yeah, so we just don't have that information on what they did. So it's a lot like magic tricks. You know, magicians don't reveal their tricks. The, the theater similarly didn't tell you how all these things were done. Yeah, as, as far as the limited research that I've done, I haven't seen anything that would explain that. I also get a feeling that the sense of um, suspending disbelief in an audience was much easier back then. Um, so that whether you were using a practical effect or you were doing something a little more stylized, the audience was just going to go with you. Because back 400 years ago, we didn't have Netflix and Hulu and all this other stuff. You went to the theater for the day. Like this was an adventure and something you looked forward to. And now it's more like, oh, I've just, I've been up since 6 a.m. and I got to go see a three and a half hour play at 8 p.m. What am I doing with my life? And you get there and it's, it's also very hard uh, to impress uh, now too, just because of the, the scale of the ability of, of, of effects in, in film and television. And so it depends. I, I just think it's a different experience, but I, I imagine that, um, yeah, there was a mix, at least from the little uh, I've read of the time as well, yeah. uh, of, of practical and stylized and, and just a, a more of an ease of suspending disbelief. Yeah, the 16th century wasn't competing with the bear from The Revenant. So, right. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Now, I know we would love to learn more about staging violence, and certainly Jared and Seth's book, we'll link to that in the show notes, is a great place to start if you want to explore this further. But, Jared and Seth, I wanted to ask you about your favorite books and resources, maybe ones that you used in putting together your research for, for this book. But, what are some books you can recommend for our listeners to use if they want to explore this part of Shakespeare's history a little bit further? Oh boy, Jared's going to name three or four of his own books now. Go ahead. <laughs> yeah, funny you should ask, Anthony. Uh, this is uh, a running joke in the book that I uh, referenced the, the last time we talked. The Gentleman's Guide to Dueling uh, actually comes up as a reference in multiple plays. So that's a good one. I think, yeah, I think I worked in a reference to any of the books that I put out. So those are the resources that I went to. Yeah, our, our, our bibliography is actually very light. Uh, I'm surprised the publisher didn't go, what the hell is wrong with you? You're going to need a little more than this. It was the strength of the few that you had, I think. Well, there's that, <laughs> but there's also, firstly, the entire reason we wrote this book is because the space is really, really limited. There, there just has not been a lot on this in 400 years. It's one of the only things that has not happened in all of the possible writings on Shakespeare you could have. 
So this is the first book of its kind there. And also our experience is not from sitting in a library all day. The reason our bibliography is short is because it's taken from 20 years of actual experience in rehearsal rooms and in production. And that's what we try and pass on in the book so that the readers will get an experience of that as well. And it does come across in the book. It's very conversational. You feel like you're sitting down with Jared and Seth to to discuss their 20 plus years of experience in staging Shakespeare's violence. So make sure you check out the show notes today to see their book and to check out the others from Jared Kirby, as well as a link to um, his previous visit with us here on that Shakespeare life. All of that will be in the show notes for today. Now, Jared and Seth, we ask everyone this next question here at that Shakespeare life. And that's what's the one book you would take with you on a deserted island? My friend, Friends in England tell me I'm supposed to allow you the complete works of Shakespeare and a copy of the Bible. So your choice would be in addition to those. Do I get two books since I'm going to give back the Bible? (laughs) I guess so. Yeah. Okay. So then my two would be uh, probably the remains of the day. I really like that a lot and the film as well, but I can't take the film. So I'll take the book and then probably just like a stupidly large book of logic puzzles, like whatever the largest one assembled is, I would take that. Those are excellent choices. We, I just finished reading Remains of the Day as a part of a book club that I'm in separately from this. So that's funny that you mentioned Did that. Did you like it? <laughs> I'm halfway through. I'll let you know. Okay. I like the first half. <laughs> okay. It gets very dark. I'm just okay. telling you. <laughs> All right. I'll be ready. So, Jared, what about you? What would you take on your deserted island? I'm trying to remember what I said last time. I don't know. Uh, yeah, it's I a would new, have to go- new deserted island this time. Oh, a new one. Um, yeah. I'd have to go with uh, at least what what is really what I love right now is a book called The War of Art, not The Art of War, but The War of Art. So um, it's a, a great book for artists in particular and common things, problems that we face uh, and ways to deal with it. So I don't know why I'd want that on the island because I don't think we're going to do well. Are are Seth and I on that island together? No. (laughs) I I I don't, I don't, I don't have uh, the, the environmental details of the deserted (laughs) island, but I should, I should get these and have them ready for guests because usually there's always someone that asks me, how long am I going to be on the island? And you know, these, these details sorts of questions, but I think it represents a great deal of optimism on your part that you're going to use your island time to launch you into some artistic (laughs) project. So I think it's fine. (laughs) So what's next for you guys? What are you working on now that you're excited about? This might be two separate questions. The thing we're working on next is volume two of this book. Um, it was it, so large that the publisher made us uh, separate it into two volumes. What we're excited about, uh, that might be a different question entirely. Jared's probably excited about this. But um, <laughs> yeah, this is his uh, his fault, actually. He asked me, what was it, 13, 14 years ago um, on the no, fourth or fifth more. scotch? Yeah, I was like, hey, you want to write this book? Okay, sure. All right. Okay. Bye. And here we are. Like, and, and you're hooked later. now. So, yeah. Well, well I'm, we're... I'm contractually obligated now. <laughs> <is> what I am. <laughs> well, and we're so glad because it's really a great book, and I can't wait to see volume two. So, thank you guys so much for being here and for joining us on the show to talk with us about staging Shakespeare's violence and the the blend of interpreting it today through a lens of what Shakespeare would have done in his lifetime. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you. Thank you. 
Find all these things at CassidyCash.com slash episode 201. That's CassidyCash.com slash EP201. If you like the history you learn about here each week and you enjoy coming along with me as we dive into the life of William Shakespeare, you can get even closer to the inside of the show with insider access to our entire creative process with things like extra woodcuts, illustrated maps, bonus content from when I'm researching the episodes, and sneak peeks at what's coming up next. If you like this kind of insider access, then consider becoming a patron of our show. Patrons are the fuel that powers our production here in the studio from keeping us well caffeinated all the way to helping us connect with new guests and be able to offer special bonuses like virtual tours and celebrity interviews. Our patrons get the best of the best content and exclusive insider access to the show. Learn more and sign up today at patreon.com slash that Shakespeare life. That's patreon.com slash that Shakespeare life. That's it for this week. Thank you for listening. I'm Cassidy Cash and I hope you learn something new about the Bard. I'll see you next week. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to That Shakespeare Life. As always, the best conversations happen after the episode over at CassidyCash.com. Become a part of a vibrant Shakespeare conversation by adding your voice over at the website. Until next time, remember, when you want to know William Shakespeare, you have to go behind the curtain and into That Shakespeare Life.